I didn't have but one boyfriend, to say a real one, before Grover. But that one didn't last. He was from down at Hargrave. He went off to Tennessee and sent me a postcard that said, hoping to be up in your parts by Sunday night. <laughs> you can't love somebody you've laughed at that way. Port Royal in Henry County, Kentucky has a population of less than 100. And it's there that farmer, novelist, poet, and cultural critic Wendell Berry, whose family has farmed Kentucky land for seven generations, has been writing for much of his life. With work like The Unsettling of America, Culture and Agriculture, Wendell has functioned as both literary maverick and visionary to Americans for half a century, issuing warnings about industrial farming and the breaking apart of rural communities, concerns that are more immediate than ever. I'm Rebecca Hoogs, the Associate Director of Seattle Arts and Lectures, and you're listening to Sal On Air, a collection of engaging talks from the world's best writers from over 30 years of Seattle Arts and Lectures. In May 2011, Wendell Berry appeared at Benaroya Hall for what he, with his trademark humor, termed a prose sandwich, the reading of a few poems, followed by his short story sold, and ending with a final poem. After, he is joined by friend, editor, and publisher Jack Shoemaker, who talks with him about what sustainability really means, advising the young, and how to save our agricultural landscape. This is Sal on Air. I'm going to read a few poems, and then a story, and then a poem. It's going to be a prose sandwich. The first poem is a letter to my friend, my old friend, Ed McClanahan. Dear Ed, I dreamed that you and I were sent to hell. The place we went to was not fiery or cold, was not Dante's hell or Milton's, but was, even so, as true a hell as any. It was a place unalterably public in which crowds of people were rushing in weary frenzy this way and that, as when classes change in a university or at quitting time in a city street, except that this place was wider far than we could see and the crowd as large as the place. In that crowd, everyone was alone Everyone was hurrying. Nobody was sitting down. Nobody was standing around. All were rushing so uniformly in every direction, so uniformly frantic, that to average them would have stood them still. It was a place deeply disturbed. We thought, you and I, that we might get across and come out on the other side if we stayed together, only if we stayed together. The other side would be a clear day in a place we would know. We joined hands and hurried along, snatching each other through small openings in the throng. 
But the place was full of dire distractions, dire satisfactions. We were torn apart, and I found you breakfasting upon a huge fried egg. I snatched you away, Ed, come on. And then, still susceptible, I met a lady whose luster no hell could dim. She took all my thought, but then, in the midst of my delight, my fear returned. Oh, damn it all, where's Ed? I fled, searching and found you again. We went on together. How this ended, I do not know. I woke before it could end. But old friend, I want to tell you how fine it was. What a durable nucleus of joy it gave my fright to force that horrid way with you. How heavenly, let us say, in spite of hell. P.S. Do you want to know why you were distracted by an egg and I by a beautiful lady? That's hell. Questionnaire. One, how much poison are you willing to eat for the success of the free market and global trade? Please, name your preferred poisons. Two, for the sake of goodness, how much evil are you willing to do? Fill in the following blanks with the names of your favorite evils and acts of hatred. Three, what sacrifices are you prepared to make for culture and civilization? Please list the monuments, shrines, and works of art you would most willingly destroy. Four, in the name of patriotism and the flag, how much of our beloved land are you willing to desecrate? List in the following spaces the mountains, rivers, towns, farms you could most readily do without. Five, state briefly the ideas, ideals, or hopes, the energy sources, the kinds of security for which you would kill a child. Name, please, the children whom you would be willing to kill. Now I'm going to read uh, some poems, three I think, from a sequence called Sabbaths that I've been writing for 30 some years now. And uh, I could talk them to death by saying, a little of what I've had on my mind on the subject of, of uh, the idea of, of, of a Sabbath, of rest, and all the troubles and efforts 
the jobs of work that attend for us humans the idea of rest. But that's all I'm going to say. I know I'm getting old and I say so, but I don't think of myself as an old man. I think of myself as a young man with unforeseen debilities. <laughs> Time is neither young nor old, but simply new, always counting the only apocalypse and the clouds, no mere measure or geometry no cubism can account for clouds or satisfactorily for bodies. There is no science for this or art either. Even the old body is new. Who has known it before? And no sooner new than gone to be replaced by a body yet older and again new. The clouds are rarely absent from our sky over this humid valley, and there is a sycamore that I watch as growing on the river bank. It forecloses the horizon like the years of an old man. And you, who are as old almost as I am, I love as I loved you young, except that old I am astonished at such a possibility and am duly grateful. Though he was ill and in pain, in disobedience to the, to the instruction he would have received if he had asked, the old man got up from his bed, dressed, and went to the barn. The bare branches of winter had emerged though the last, through the last leaf colors of fall, the loveliest of all, browns and yellows, delicate and nameless in the gray light and the sifting rain. He put feed in the troughs for 18 ewe lambs, sent the dog for them, and she brought them. They came eager to their feed and he who felt their hunger was by their feeding eased. From no place in the time of present places, within no boundary nameable in human thought, they had gathered once again, the shepherd, his sheep, and his dog, with all the known and the unknown round about to the heaven's limit. Was this his stubbornness or bravado? No, only an ordinary act of profoundest intimacy in a day that might have been better. Still, the world persisted in its beauty, he in his gratitude, and for this he had most earnestly prayed. I wasn't waiting for you to do that. 
I was just interjecting a little silence there, but thank you. <laughs> so many times I've gone away from here where I'd rather be than any place I know to go off into the air for which my only gift is breath, for I have of myself no wings. It is death. Farewell, my dearest ones. Farewell, my lovely fields. Farewell, my grazing flocks, my patient horses, Maggie, my ardent dog. Farewell, tall woods, always so full of song. However long I've stayed away, coming home is resurrection. The man who has been gone comes back to his place as he would come naked and cold into his own clothes. And they are here, the known beloved, family, neighbors obliging and dear, the dead too, denying their graves, haunt the places they were known in and knew, field and barn, riverbank and woods, the familiar animals all are here. Coming back is brightening in a grave, such is the presage of old hymns. To the place we parted from in sorrow, we return in joy, the beautiful shore, eternal morning, unclouded day. Now I'm going to read a story called The Auction. The story takes place, is spoken in 1991. It's about all finished now. I took sick in the night back in the fall past frost. When Coulter Branch came over to see about me the next morning, I was down and couldn't get up. Coulter called Wilma on the telephone. He was afraid to leave me to go get her and she had to come from their house on the tractor, driving with one hand and holding the baby with the other. That's a good girl, I'll tell you. They got me up and fairly dressed and took me to the hospital. The hospital helped me over my sickness, but seemed like I was old after that and not fit to look after myself. And so the old place and all had to be sold. They brought me from the hospital here to the nursing home at Hargrave. Rest Haven, they call it, the end of the line. It's all right, I don't complain. But I was the last in Port William of the name of Gibbs. Before I married Grover Gibbs, I was Beulah Cordell. Annie Mae Ellis was my first cousin. She was Annie Mae Cordell Ellis. I was Beulah Cordell Gibbs. Beulah means a land of peace and rest. A preacher told me that back when I was young. It made him blush to tell me, and I knew why. But I wasn't cut out to be a preacher's wife, and I reckon he could tell. 
I didn't have but one boyfriend, to say a real one, before Grover, but that one didn't last. He was from down at Hargrave. He went off to Tennessee and sent me a postcard that said, hoping to be up in your parts by Sunday night. <laughs> you can't love somebody you've laughed at that way. I was 17 when I married Grover. He was 22. We couldn't wait. We ran off to Indiana and waked up a preacher. He stood us in front of the fireplace and tied the knot. When he asked Grover to promise all those things until death, Grover said, would you go over that a little slower? That was him exactly. The preacher had to stop and laugh. <laughs> By both of us being gone, my folks pretty well knew why. They had some objections, but after a while it got all right. And it was all right, pretty much, until death. Well, I reckon you could complain about somebody you've married and lived with a long time. But then they've died and gone from you. And you look back and you're grateful. Maybe it's not that easy to tell about Grover. He was good enough at work, better than good enough, I think. But he was not hardly work brittle. What it was, I reckon, he didn't have what they call ambition, but he suited me. What we both wanted from this world was a living, our daily bread, if that means plenty to eat and a sound roof over our heads. Came a time when we had more, but we knew the more was extra. Grover mostly never minded being delayed or interrupted. He couldn't finish a day without going off after supper, still picking his teeth to sit talking in Port William till bedtime. That was the old Port William schedule, you might say. The men would go to town after supper and sit in front of the stores in good weather or inside somewhere in bad, talking and laughing and carrying on the way people do who have always known each other and are telling a long story that they all know as far as the night before. Grover did his duty and held up his end of the conversation. Well, I loved him. He could be the funniest. You could look in his face practically all his life and see that he was just waiting to be invited to have a good time. And that as soon as the invitation came, he was going to accept. <laughs> he always looked ready to grin if he wasn't already grinning, even when he thought he was by himself. Because of that, maybe when he was sad, it would be the saddest face you ever saw. But he was always looking for fun and just about always finding it until he was almost dead. When things went to drifting towards what Grover called fun, seemed like Burley Coulter and Big Ellis would sooner or later be into it with him. It would be hard to tell all the things they did. And fun lasted them a long time. For after it had happened, they'd be years 
telling each other about it. And the more they told about it, the funnier it got. As a usual thing, Burley and Grover didn't work together. Burley mostly worked with his family or Elton Penn or the Roundberries. But Grover and Big Ellis would often be helping each other at our place or at Big's. Since they'd married cousins, they were sort of kin. And when one of them needed help, the other one would likely go. And since Big Ellis and Burley were neighbors, sometimes Burley showed up too. When it was just Grover and Big, they talked probably as much as they worked. Maybe they'd be in a tobacco patch with their hose where I could see them from the kitchen window. They'd hit a few licks and pretty soon stop and lean on the hoe handles. They'd look off at the sky and point and prophesy the weather and then hit a few more licks. Or I would see Grover lean back and laugh at some outrageousness such as Big was always full of, like that. Grover would work as hard to play a joke as for a living. Well, I'll tell you exactly how he would do. After the pickup hay balers had been in the country a good while, this was after we had got settled finally on our own place, Grover and Big went in partners and bought a pretty good baler, second hand. Big was worthless at anything mechanical, so Grover took charge of the baler, always pulled it with our tractor and did the baling. Grover loved an old tractor. He liked to fix things and he liked to drive. One summer, Big had a field of red clover to put up for hay. He got it mowed. And in a couple of days, Grover went over and raked it as soon as the dew dried. After dinner, he went back with the baler. Big had got Burley to come over to help with the hauling. They were sitting on the wagon, waiting for Grover to bail around or two before they started to load. It was a blustery day, and the wind blew Big's hat off. He started after it, but couldn't gain on it. When it blew past Grover, he pulled out of the windrow he was bailing, put the tractor in a higher gear, and cut in ahead of Big. Burley was just paying careful attention to see how it was going to turn out. <laughs> so there went Big, stumbling along in his version of running. And there went Grover ahead of him, as fast as he could go and still sit on the tractor. And there went Big's hat, tumbling over the windrows like it finally had a chance to be free. Well, it was Grover that caught the hat. He bailed it and slowed down and went back to bailing hay. <laughs> he never gave Big so much as a glance. He didn't even grin. <laughs> he and Big worked harder when Burley was with them. Burley was tuned up a little different. The people he ordinarily worked with, they went at it pretty hard. Burley was another one, maybe not easy to tell about. He wasn't, you might think, all that serious, and yet he was. Time was, this country was full of tales about Burley Coulter. He was right smart older than me, but I remember him when he was young. He had good looks and ways the women taken to. You'd accuse him of something outlandish you'd heard about him, and he'd say, if they told it at the store, I reckon it's a story. 
Or he'd say, that must have been the day I found myself lost. And he had a way of looking at you. You had to love him. There was a time or two, a night or two, but he had that seriousness. More and more, I think. He saw his family through their hard times, his friends too. He was a neighbor. But Lord, how they did carry on, him and Grover and Big. Well, them old times are gone forever, but people were neighbors then. Your kinfolks were your neighbors and your neighbors were your neighbors. You worked together. You saw each other in Port William on Saturday night and in church like as not on Sunday morning. Now that I've got mainly nothing to do, I think and think about them all. It seems just natural now to, to expect to see them again over on the other side. I think of all of us together, paid up somehow and complete. For a long time after Grover and I got married, we were tenants on other people's places, taking half of what we, what we earned from the crops, which I'll say was hard sometimes. I mean, you could have a hard thought or two about it. But for people with no land, it was, it was what was possible and was all right, a chance maybe to get ahead. We got half of the cash money, what there was of it. And back there in the 20s and 30s, there wouldn't be much. But we had our old ways. We had a garden, of course, and milk from our cows and meat from our hogs and meat and eggs from our chickens and our patching and mending and making do. And so we had our living. The place we lived on longest was the old Leavers place. Mr. Robert Lavere grew up on that place in the old house that a long time later we lived in. He was known back then as Jappy Leavers, but he made a lawyer out of himself and then he went by J. Robert Lavere. <laughs> he hadn't been long dead when the tenant before us gave the place up and we moved there. Run down as it was, it was the best place we've had and we stayed on there till my mother died and I inherited our home place. After Mr. Levere was gone, his widow, Miss Charlotte, saw to the farm, and I'm telling you, she was something like nothing else. To see her come riding up in the back seat of that big car, wearing her hat and her fur and her white gloves and looking straight ahead through her little specks, you'd have thought she was the queen of Hargrave, which in a way she was. She was just about the best thing that ever happened to Grover. She couldn't tell a cow from a bull, but she had no end of advice about farming. <laughs> she would decide the barn cats were too thin and tell Grover to see they got more milk or more mice. We would take garden stuff to her when we had extra. We tried to have a little extra for her. And she would wonder if the green beans were ready in March or roasting ears in November. <laughs> Grover enjoyed everything she said and remembered it all and could talk just like her. 
Her driver and man of all work, Willard Safely, would pull up in front of the barn and blow the horn. If Grover was anywhere around, he would pretty soon show up. He would always stand back away from the car, so she had to roll her window down and stick her head out to talk to him. Her way of doing that completely tickled him, but he would have the soberest look on his face and nod his head and say, yes, ma'am, yes, ma'am, and memorize it all so he could tell me first thing and then at town. <laughs> the next place we lived was our own. My mother and daddy didn't have but one child that lived, and that was me. By the end of the war, my folks were both gone, and we had no good reason to stay with Ms. Lavere, Ms. Gottrocks, as Grover liked to call her. And so we moved home. It was not a big or a fine place, 115 acres more or less, some of it steep. But my folks took good care of it and kept it up, kept up the buildings and fences, and so did we. We were changed by having it, in all the world, our own place, more maybe than we were changed by having the children. Grover was Grover, and he'd have been Grover if we'd owned a thousand acres or the whole county. But the 115 that was ours made us feel permanent and serious, in a way safe, as we hadn't been able to feel before. We didn't change anything much. We kept the best of the things my folks had and the best of the things we had. We stuck to our old ways of doing for ourselves, and we did all right. Grover always felt at home wherever we were, but I got back some of the old at-home feeling I'd had when I was a girl growing up. It was fine for me. Back in 1920, when we got married, both of us were young, but born in different centuries. Maybe that counts for something, but to look at us, you wouldn't have known. I'd have to say we didn't waste any time starting a family. Billy was born nine months just about to the day. <laughs> Grover would look at me when I began to show and just laugh. He'd say, I reckon that must have been some night And then in a little more than a year, we had Alfie, and then I lost a baby. And then six years went by, and then it was Nance, and then Sissy, and then Stanley, named after his grandpa, and nearly spoiled to death by all the others. And after him, no more. Getting them's one thing and raising them's another. <laughs> Grover made a saying out of that. You get them here, and then you have them to take care of and worry about. Alfie, I'll say, was the best, the best one of all of us. The three littlest ones was raised by her as much as by me. She would be carrying them around and looking after them, playing at being a mother, I thought, sort of doll playing. But I pretty soon realized that when she was with them, I didn't need to worry. She put them first and was always watchful. And she hadn't hardly got them of mine raised until she married Tommy Greatlow from down here at Hargrave and started raising her own. 
She's getting old herself now, and her health is bad, her heart. But she drives in here every day to see how I am and what she can do for me. Her heart is poorly now, maybe, because she's given it away all her life to anybody that needed it, always doing for somebody. She and Tommy are still out there on their good farm in the river valley with the world dug up all around by the sand and gravel company. And they've got one boy, looks like, who'll stick there and go on with it. He's 32, Tommy Jr. is, a good boy, good to me. The others, Alfie's, but mine too, are gone, long gone, scattered off to city jobs all over the country. When the time came for me to leave the old place, Alfie and them, of course, couldn't take it on, for they already had all the land they could look after, and having to depend on the Mexicans part of the time as it was. The rest of them, children or grandchildren, couldn't even think of it. There was nothing in it for them, as they sometimes pointed out to me, nothing anyhow that they wanted. The worst time in all our family raising was when Billy was gone in the war. He was wild to fly, and he got into the Air Force. He was a gunner on one of them biggest bombers. He'd get the pilot when they were supposed to be training to fly low over our house and all over the Port William neighborhood, bringing everybody outside to look up, scaring the livestock, looked like almost touching the treetops, taking chances for the fun of it. Boys, Grover would say, that's boys for you. He said if their brains were dynamite, they wouldn't have blowed their hats off. <laughs> and with a war to fight. And then, they went off, and then they went off overseas into the fighting, taking chances then, sure enough. And Billy, you could tell from the little he rode home, still excited about flying. I wonder if he could actually imagine then, at his age, that he actually could get killed. But I could imagine it, and I did. They were getting shot at and the fighter planes going at them like the little birds after a hawk. Billy was on my mind, seemed like in, even in my sleep, all through the war. And afterwards I realized I hadn't been young since it started. Grover and I had, I reckon, our share of troubles before that. Troubles, you know, that will come. And he could make me mad enough sometimes with that grin of his that I could have knocked him in the head with a skillet. <laughs> but with Billy gone in the war, I saw something about Grover I'd not seen before. I'd be watching him, and I saw the worry and the fear slide across his face behind that grin. And I knew, I knew forever, that without talking about it the way I did, he was grieving and afraid wearing it through day by day, just like I was. And then I'd say, come here. And he would come and we would hold each other. When Billy came back, his head was full of stuff it had never had in it before. He went away to college and into a suit and into business. 
and after that was away and away. He set the example, I reckon, for the younger ones. When their times came, they went too. I've worried about them all. You can get a plenty of that. Finally, you see you've had enough. You've said enough goodbyes. You need one for yourself. After we decided on the sale and the children came as they got a chance to see about me, I told them to take what they wanted out of the house, and they did a few little things, keepsakes. And then I gave the best furniture in the house, an old cherry dresser, to Coulter and Wilma Branch. I just made them take it because I depended on them ever since Grover died, and they'd been nothing but good to me. They'd lived all that time as tenants on the next farm, and I'd pretty much made family of them. All the rest had to be sold, all the farm machinery, all the tools, all the old bolts and nuts and washers and metal pieces that my dad and then Grover had saved in case of need, all the furniture and other household plunder, the cattle that Coulter had been taking care of on the halves, they had already gone off to the sale barn. Everything else, everything that would come loose was auctioned off the day of the sale. The farm too, it had to go. The sale was on a bright March day, warm for the season. The children all came home for it. Far off as they were in distance and in mind, they knew they couldn't help knowing. It was a day that ended something that mattered, at least to me, and so they came. But Alfie was the one who looked after me and stayed close because she was Alfie and was used to me needing her. The others put in the day standing around, looking starched and uncomfortable, even with each other, getting recognized by people they didn't recognize or couldn't remember. Alfie got me there early and led me across the yard, we with my two walking canes, Lord help me, to the easy chair that they'd carried out with the rest of the furniture and set under the sugar tree in the front yard. That was where they had the wagons that were loaded with household stuff and the hand tools and the odds and ends. When she got me settled in the chair and the afghan she'd brought tucked around me, Alfie brought one of the straight chairs that had been in the kitchen and sat beside me. All through the sale, until it was over, her hand would always be touching me. Arnold McCarty cried the sale. He had his loudspeaker and two men to help him and watch for, for bids. They started the sale out in the barn lot with the farm machinery and sold their way toward the house in the front yard where I was. I could hear them coming ever closer, Arnold McCarty praising whatever it was he was about to sell, and then his sing-song, and then stopping to praise again and plead for another bid, and then the sing-song again, and then sold. And then he would start it all again a little closer, and I waited, watching the people who were looking at the things for sale, the furniture lined up in rows across the yard, and the smaller things, dishes and such, 
set out on the wagons. And I, who was not going to buy anything, sat there looking at everything that was for sale. I had sort of got ready to see the household things carried outdoors and laid out to be looked at and sold. What I wasn't ready for was how poor it looked once it was out of place. All the marks of use and wear on everything, the fretted or shiny places on the furniture where our hands had rested. What I knew to somebody else would be the secondhand look of it all. The cracks and chips in the dishes seemed like I'd known them so well I hadn't seen them for years, but now I saw them. Everything already looked like it belonged to somebody else. I was getting spoken to and speaking, some of the women, old friends, neighbors, leaning over to give me a hug. But all the time I was listening, sold, sold. Every time I heard it, I knew that piece by piece, the things we'd all of us gathered there so many years would be scattered and gone. All that had been used to make it a dwelling place by my folks on back, by Grover and me, by just me with Coulter and Wilma to help me, all the memories of all the lives that had made it and held it together, all would come apart and be gone as if it never was. After a while, soon enough, the crowd had shifted into the yard and Arnold McCarty was selling the furniture, some that went for antiques and brought a pretty penny some that didn't. He sold the kitchen table, painted how many times, that we bought when we married, before we had hardly anything to put on it. He sold the chiffonier that I think came from my mother's grandmother. He sold the walnut four-poster bed that Grover's dad sawed the posts off of when they moved into a house with low ceilings. <laughs> Lord, what didn't he sell? He sold a rusty set of fire dogs that had been wired to a rafter in the smokehouse as long as I can remember. He sold a set of curtain stretchers that he gave a man a dollar to bid on and then sold to him for 50 cents. <laughs> when he got to the chair I was sitting in and was telling what a fine chair it was, somebody yelled out, does the lady go with it? And Arnold McCarty said, no now, we're selling the chair, not the lady. He sold the chair. He sold even the doilies I'd crocheted for the stand tables in the back of the sofa. He sold all the kitchen utensils, all the knives and forks and spoons, all the dishes right down to the sugar bowl. When everything was sold off the wagons and some were beginning to pay for what they'd bought and go to their cars, Arnold McCarty kept his place standing on the wagon nearest to me. He told about the farm, how big it was, how it laid, the condition of the improvements, and so on. And then he started his cry. I knew Coulter Branch was going to bid on the place. He had taken good care of it ever since Grover died. He's Lida and Danny Branch's son, and that's a family that takes care of things. Coulter knew the place, knew how to farm it, he wanted it, and he needed it. Lord knows I wanted him to have it, him and Wilma. 
He was in the bidding from the start, and he stayed with it for a while, and then he had to give up. Coulter's a smart man and thoughtful. He knew pretty exactly what the place was worth as a farm. What I didn't expect, and maybe he didn't, was that to a certain kind of person it was worth more as an investment than it was worth as a farm. And that kind of person, it so happened, was there. Mr. Gottrocks, I call him, a man from Louisville with, I reckon, no end of money. I was watching Coulter and trying to think fast enough to pray for him. When his final bid was topped, I saw him walk away with his head down. I'll not forget that. With my last breath, I'll grieve over that. I'll die wishing I'd just given the farm to Coulter and Wilma. But of course, my children wouldn't have stood for it. Althea might have, but the others wouldn't. And I'll tell you what happened then. Althea nor Coulter nor Wilma, none of my loved ones would have told me. But it was talked about. It got around. And one of the old ones here told me about it. Mr. Gottrocks hadn't any sooner paid his investment into it than he hired a man with a bulldozer to smash the house and other buildings all to flinders and push them into a pile and set them afire. He pushed out every fence, every landmark that stood above the ground, every tree, a place where generations of people lived their lives. If they came back now looking for it, they wouldn't know where they were. And so it's all gone. A new time has come. Various ones of the old time keep faith and stop by to see me, Coulter and Wilma and a few others. But the one I wait to see is Alfie. Seems like my whole life now is lived under the feeling of her hand touching me that day of the sale and every day still. I lie awake in the night and I can see it all in my mind. The old place, the house, all the things I took care of so long. I thought I might miss it, but I don't. The time has gone when I could do more than worry about it and I declare it's a load off my mind. But the thoughts still are a kind of company. Thank you very much. And now I'll read the, the uh, concluding poem. It's another Sabbath poem. And it has an epigraph from uh, William Faulkner's short story, Race at Morning, which is a wonderful story. Maybe, Mr. Ernest said, the best word in our language, the best of all. At the end of a long time, the bookkeeper sits down with his book. He enters all that he has learned of suffering, grief, and ugliness, of cruelty, waste, and loss, 
stupidity, meanness, falsehood, selfishness, loneliness, and greed. He reckons all these as a great weight. He has no way of weighing. He enters then all he has learned of joy, goodness, beauty, love, of generosity, grace, and laughter, good sense, honesty, compassion, mercy, and forgiveness. And these also weigh an unweighable weight that registers only on his heart. He cannot at last complete and close his book. He cannot say of evil and good which outweighs the other, though he feels his times rage for quantification and he would like to know. He only can suppose the things of goodness, the most momentary, are in themselves so whole, so bright, as to redeem the darkness and trouble of the world, though we set it all afire. Maybe, the bookkeeper says, maybe, for he knows that in a time gone mad for certainty, maybe gives us room to live and move and be. We'll be back for more conversation in a moment, but first, if you're concerned, like Wendell Berry is, about industrial farming, consumerism, and our environmental crisis, we'd like to invite you to a very special event. Join us on the 50th anniversary of Earth Day for our talk with Pulitzer Prize-winning environmental journalist Elizabeth Colbert, author of The Sixth Extinction, at Benaroya Hall on April 22, 2020. Colbert has talked with top scientists from Alaska to Greenland to get to the heart of the debate over global warming and ask what, if anything, can be done to save our planet. Tickets are available now at lectures.org and just for Salon Air listeners, we have a special promo code that will get you 30% off tickets. Just enter the code COLBERT30 at checkout. Now, here's more from Wendell Berry. It's a nice thing to do, I think, to be here tonight and celebrate Bob Dylan's 70th birthday. <laughs> Isn't that something? Who would have believed it? So you all have put some questions together. They're going to be brought to us. And we'll send a postcard with answers for all those we don't get to this evening. <laughs> yeah, Jack will. <laughs> um, so I have a couple of questions just to get us started. Having worked in opposition for your whole life, what does it feel like to see some of your ideas and criticisms responded to in a positive fashion? At least a small portion of the population seems to be coming around to an agrarian way of thinking, or is that too superficial to have a necessary impact? Can the mad farmer stay angry? <laughs> no, he just has to stay crazy. <laughs> Did you say you'd been in opposition all these years? Oh, you. <laughs> you. <laughs> I go along. I see. Okay. All right. Well, I don't think it's superficial. Uh, it's, uh, 
in some ways shallow at present, uh, people have a lot uh, to relearn. A lot of the things that we've succeeded, we think, in forgetting uh, for the last uh, 60 so years, um, we're now beginning to wonder about again and uh, to relearn. And there is a kind of agrarianism that's spreading around. And uh, most wonderfully, it's uh, spreading among urban people who are begin beginning to think of thoughts that are fundamentally agrarian, like, where's the next bite going to come from? And uh, what's going to be the condition of it when it gets to me? And what do I owe for it? And what are my obligations that are attendant upon getting it? And then there's another uh, phenomenon that interests me very much, and that is uh, what I've been calling leadership from the bottom. The country now is just freckled all over with uh, people who, without official notice or permission or a grant or wealth of their own, are just seeing what needs to be done and starting to do it. And so I'm torn about that. I can see that it might be possible for the people at the top to help. Uh, but I'm also more than half hoping that they don't find out about this <laughs> until we can get it started so firmly and with such momentum that they can't stop it. It's too late. <laughs> or Look. charge for it. <laughs> well, if... if um Sustainability has become resiliency. Can either of those ideas work in a capitalist framework? I don't, that's, I don't uh, think that's a thing that we have to worry about. The capitalist framework exists. Uh, but what this, these phenomena that I'm talking about, this urban agrarianism and this leadership from the bottom are not uh, ideological. And I don't think they're looking at the capitalist framework or worrying about it. Now, you did use those words, uh, sustainable, and what was the other one? Resilient. Resilient. Well, we're going to have those words. <laughs> uh, we're going to have them, and in some ways, we've got to have them. We've got to have this word sustainable, I suppose. Uh, but we have to understand, as we go about using it, that... We Americans haven't sustained anything much <laughs> for very long. And uh, when we put our little brief history of a few hundred years in the perspective of long time, even the lo as long a time as agriculture, we see that it's pretty short. And we have to marvel at the damage we've managed to do in so short a time. 
we have really been gifted for that work and we've done it uh, a, 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 a supreme job. What do you make of those critics that describe agriculture as the 10,000 year old mistake? Uh, you have to concede them the, uh, the possibility that they're right. Uh, Wes Jackson, for instance, really uh, set me on my ear and taught me a lot when he, he said that I'd been talking about the problems in agriculture and he was talking about the problem of agriculture. <laughs> and, um, uh, but, I mean, it's good to have that kind of an idea available because it puts other ideas in a kind of perspective and helps us to think. And uh, it's not, that's not a bad idea. Uh, <laughs> but there's no use in, in uh, fooling ourselves. We're stuck with agriculture. And uh, the, um, the hope that we have, the real hope, really is the hope that Wes Jackson offers, and that is the possibility of re-perennializing the... Um, the um, um, economic landscapes, the, the agricultural landscape, landscapes mainly. But we've got to cover that ground and we've got to get rid of the toxicity. And uh, we've got to quit tearing down the little that's left of the uh, husbandry cultures. And we have, I mean, if we're gonna have good agriculture, we've got to have good intelligence uh, established upon millions of small places. And that is exactly the kind of uh, intelligence, the kind of culture that the industrial culture has purposely made light of, degraded, and destroyed. Well, the, um, the first question of the evening, what do you find most surprising about growing older? Well, I've paid a lot of attention to old people all my life. Um, and so I'm not very much surprised at anything so far. <laughs> uh, the, the, uh, the thing maybe that I didn't anticipate, though I wouldn't call it a surprise, is how I've grown in sympathy with my old elders, my grandparents and my parents, and I've begun to fill out in my mind the curve their life, their lives made, and they they are very close to me now from a new kind of sympathy. These uh, four questions in a row here are all about um, hope and the art of being there. One person asks, how would you define our most urgent problem? <laughs> all right, our second most urgent problem. <laughs> well, I was out in uh, Jackson, Wyoming, last fall, I believe it was. And uh, somebody asked me what I would do if I was president. I said, I would outlaw volume discounts. <laughs> <laughs> and that's because every 
town in my county. There's not a big town in my county. Every town in my county is either dying or dead. And it's because of Walmart and the other chains. Uh, Walmart, you know, is greening itself and taking an interest in local food and so on. But you know, if they're really serious, why don't you get out of the way of the local hardware stores? So Walmart was mentioned out there in Jackson and uh, one of my host, hostess's boys said, that Mr. Berry seems like a nice man, but I hope he doesn't get to be president. <laughs> <laughs> so do I. <laughs> I think maybe I've lived past that possibility. Well, when you finished The Hidden Wound, did you ever imagine in your lifetime you'd see a black president? No. No, I didn't think so. It's an amazing time. Uh, so the, so many of these questions you'll have to take home and ponder, and they're wonderful questions, but they all, some of them have to do with advice for the young. So this one seems to be typical. What is the one piece of advice you would give a new, actually not young farmer who has the opportunity to grow food on a 20-acre parcel of prime farmland? Well, listen critically to the old farmers. Um, that's, I think that's where the, the other back to the land movement was, was weak. They didn't pay enough attention to their neighbors. But <laughs> advising the young, you know, is a, a cheap form of entertainment. This is a little more specific question, but along the same lines. Um, for those of us who want to change the farm bill, making it the food and farm bill, uh, how, can we, how can that be done? Um, the farm bill that I'm pushing is the 50-year the, uh, farm bill that uh, came into existence largely by the effort of, of West Jackson. Uh, I did attend a number of the preliminary meetings when we went around and kind of got permission from our, our allies to do such a thing. But the idea, the, the fundamental, well, the 50-year farm bill tries to address problems of farming rather than subsidies and, and peripheral uh, matters. And uh, the, the, ad, the main idea is that in 50 years, uh, from the present, when we have 80% um, of farmland is planted to annuals and is therefore severely, uh, uh, extremely vulnerable to erosion, uh, to 80% in perennials in 50 years. And that's a good program. The, uh, the idea is to address soil erosion to take these, to address these things head on, as the farm bill, any farm bill should do it. So this is, for the 50-year farm bill is a model farm bill. Address head on erosion, toxicity, and the destruction of the rural communities. So, um, 
if you if you uh, are capable of being really really interested in the the regular farm bill, then go ahead. I th I'm for you 100%. I'm not really very interested in it, to tell you the truth. I don't, I, and I don't. I think these people who are solving problems on their own in the. Um, uh, I think they're going ahead. They're not waiting for uh, the Secretary of Agriculture to give them permission. So these these are people who are using their own heads, not somebody else's. And I'm, I'm absolutely certain that there's more intelligence going to waste now on the part of people who are getting the instructions from somebody else. So use your own head on the farm bill. That's my advice. If it's all bad, say so. Just if you find something good in it, say so. Yeah, part of it has to do with subsidies too. Well, the subsidy game is, uh, uh, all that's doing um, is uh, causing surpluses, which are fairly expensive to, well, devastatingly expensive to the land, uh, seriously expensive to farmers, and a windfall for the agribusiness corporations. A surplus is a weapon that never serves the uh, the, the producers of the surplus. It serves the people who benefit from low prices, which are always the result of the surplus. So this is a, um, harkens back to a few weeks ago. My sister in Ferrum, Virginia, wants to know how mountaintop removal affects farming. And did you get arrested while sitting in inside the governor's office? No. No, I didn't. Uh, we, we were, uh, the, the governor uh, decided not to let us be arrested. He just invited us to spend the weekend in his office. <laughs> <laughs> and we did. Now, mountaintop removal doesn't destroy farmland for the most part, uh, except insofar as it affects the drainages, which in turn can affect farmland. But um, mountaintop removal is destroying forest. It's uh, diametrically opposed to everything that the forest stands for. And uh, the, the, the terrible tragedy of it is that for a, a, um, a commodity, that is of value only in the moment that it's being consumed by fire, we're destroying the forest, which in good care has the ability to be valuable and productive forever. For people who wonder about the willingness, our collective willingness to destroy the world, Mountaintop removal is very instructive because there, uh, in a single neat example, is the exhibit of our willingness to destroy the world, ours, yours and mine. And then you look from that to agriculture 
And you see that industrial agriculture is gonna bring us to the same end. It's world destruction. Bad farming is just slower. But given enough time. It's a follow-up question from another person. Do you see any signs that we will be able to wean ourselves from our dependency on coal as an energy source? Yeah. Um, I do. I think that the, the anxiety about large-scale energy production is growing, and it really ought to grow. I mean, even if you've got a well-run coal-fired power plant, you've got a toxic uh, ash heap. Well, it's not a heap, it's a, it's a landfill, essentially, that'll be toxic, um, well, forever, to use that word again, and uh, toxic with really bad stuff, heavy metals and, and carcinogens of all kinds. And then we're, you know, it puts that stuff in the, in the air. Um, Tanya, my wife and I have uh, uh, invested in um, three big solar panels. And um, we're too old to do that. <laughs> we're, uh, that is to say, we're, it won't probably pay for itself in our lifetime. But there it is. And the first bill uh, for the, uh, the bill for the first billing period after that those things were running was for nothing. I mean, they charge us something. I'm not, I'm not sure I understand why, but the, we didn't, <laughs> the, uh, the figure for the electricity we'd used was zero. And so it is a great feeling to go out there and look at that meter and see it running backwards. <laughs> so yeah, I think it, it can be done. Don't forget, uh, in as recently as the 1940s, which I'm beginning to be old enough now to see not so long ago, there were worlds of households in rural America that had no electricity. And I won't tell you, they were doing just fine. Well, I'm told we have to, uh, I'll ask one more question. Um, how do you stay joyful with all the facts in your face? Well, you can't stay in opposition uh, for all these years without having a lot of fun. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, well, I'll end this with some more advice to the young. <laughs> your young people mustn't be too serious about all this, you got to have fun. Now, by that I mean decent fun. <laughs> but Edward Abbey said, saving the world makes a good hobby. And that's... And so you're not gonna advocate indecent fun as we close tonight, all right. No, <laughs> Thank I'm you. against indecent fun. But there's a hell of a lot of fun that is perfectly decent. <laughs> Thank you very much. 
Thanks so much to Wendell Berry for joining us on the South Stage. Thanks as well to the Seattle Arts and Lecture staff, board, and community. And thanks to all of you for listening. This show would not be possible without you. Our show is produced by Jack Straw Cultural Center with theme music by Daniel Spills. To hear more, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, leave us a rating so that more people can enjoy Sal on Air.